Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. How does a will become a former Russian spy will? Does it tear up its uh, membership card? Does it start speaking another language? How does it report back to the Russian security services? What were the circumstances in which it resigned from the service? Or is it no longer a will? Answers on a postcard, please, or on the Twitter, or even on the telephone lines. I mention it only because it does indeed show the depths of absurdity to which the hysterical mendacity of the lie machine that is the Western media has sunk. The same BBC apparently alleged that Roger Waters had a balloon of a pig flying above his concert in Berlin adorned with the star of David, the Jewish religious symbol. It was a complete lie, as a thousand pictures of the pig from all angles make clear no such horrific image was ever present in the auditorium. It is telling that such a brazen and gigantic and, I believe, grave defamation could be carried on the British state mouthpiece BBC without consequence, without an apology, without a retraction. The claim is still there, I'm told. And yet, in a way, we can be shocked but not surprised. The effort that is being made to destroy the reputation and destroy the career of the legendary Pink Floyd singer, songwriter, and musician is truly mind-blowing. It is Jeremy Corbyn to the power of 10. It is an international effort to destroy someone for no other reason than that he has dared to speak up from the considerable platform that he commands against pet narratives of the Western oligarchies on the war in Ukraine, on the attempt to invade and occupy and destroy the Syrian Arab Republic, and on the issue of Israel-Palestine. They try to tell you that Roger Waters is a fascist. I read it all day and every day. Roger Waters' father died fighting fascism in Italy in the Second World War. Roger Waters has written and performed some of the most magnificent anti-fascist music that the English-speaking world has ever seen. And that's why he's packing them out all over the world on this tour, and he's in his 70s. 
Sorry, Roger, if you didn't want that to be known. This man is an icon, a hero, a hero to tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people. In Sao Paulo in Brazil, they've just had to put on an extra night. So many people wanted to pack into the auditorium there. In Berlin, he performed a part of his show that he and Pink Floyd before him have performed for decades called The Wall. You get it? Another brick in the wall. It is an anti-fascist parody, particularly appropriate in Berlin of all places, I would have thought, both ancient and modern Berlin, both 1933 to 1945 Berlin and 2023 Berlin. But up went a hue and cry to try again to cancel his concert in Frankfurt. It failed, and Frankfurt turned in a magnificent packed audience, not a seat to be had at any price, and gave Roger Waters their support. Why am I dwelling on this? Because it showed the desperation of the prevailing orthodoxy, but also how it is failing, failing, failing on every front. We're asking in the poll, is Roger Waters being smeared? Overwhelmingly, you all can see it that he is being smeared. Why mention that? Because it shows how paper thin, as thin as a Belugia whale's skin, is the prevailing narrative in the so-called Western world today. Tito, in the chorus, the cat's chorus, of journalism isn't a crime. As they keep singing, every time they all issue a tweet about a journalist imprisoned in Russia or journalism in general, journalism is not a crime, they sing, these hyenas. Not mentioning that in a London jailhouse, Belmarsh Dungeon, rots. The world's greatest journalist, Julian Assange, another thing that Roger Waters ceaselessly campaigns on. But at least you could say, well, Julian Assange is Australian. He's wanted by the Americans. But Kit Clarenberg is British. He's a British citizen who landed at London Luton Airport just a few days ago. London, in the grip of a crime wave, where if you send your teenage children out on the street to buy a loaf, you're a fool, because the chances of them coming back in a box or bleeding, having been stabbed or shot, are so terribly high. A crime wave that the Metropolitan Police cannot get on top of. Six of the Metropolitan Police's finest plain clothes officers, six of them, were waiting at the foot of the aircraft steps to pounce 
on a British journalist, a regular guest on this show, Kit Clarenberg, where they questioned him for five hours in an interrogation room under the anti-terrorism laws, asking him his views on inter alia Rishi Sunak. Well, I don't know if Kit has any views at all. Does anybody even care about Rishi Sunak? Six police officers interrogating a journalist about his political views, seizing his property under the Anti-Terrorism Acts, copying everything on his computer, his phone, God knows what else they did with it, interrogating him about his views on this political issue or that. Kit should have told them to get stuffed. They wanted to arrest him. Go ahead. He should never have spoken to them for five hours, in my view. But he's a decent citizen, was trying to be helpful uh, to the Metropolitan Police's finest. These people who tell you journalism is not a crime are seizing journalists. They seized a French journalist at St. Pancras Station just a few weeks before and interrogated him on his attitude to President Macron. Thank God they didn't interrogate me on that subject or half of England for that matter. What business is it of the Metropolitan Police? What Kit Clarenberg thinks about Rishi Sunak? Unless, of course, we have now officially become a police state. I can live with that because I don't live there. Be a police state if you want to. But don't at the same time pretend that you're a free country, that you're a democratic country, that you're in fact fighting wars and getting ready to fight more for freedom and democracy. That just makes you a complete hypocrite. Capital H, hypocrite. And nobody wants to be a citizen or even a subject of a country whose middle name is hypocrisy. The Americans have let it be known that they do not approve of American weaponry and war material being used by the Ukrainian regime to mount attacks on old-age pensioners and people tending their allotments on Russian territory. Joe Biden said it was an escalation too far. Macron says, look, we need to negotiate with President Vladimir Putin. We live in a country, in Britain, which thinks the opposite. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, in the past, a personal friend of mine across the political aisle. He stated in public, bluntly, that Kiev was right to launch military attacks on the Kremlin to kill the president of the Russian Federation. Military attacks on the gardeners in the allotments. Drone attacks on old age pensioners housing on the outskirts of Moscow. James cleverly supports that in public. 
This is a declaration of war, James. As former President Medvedev made clear, this now makes you and sadly us, the British, a party to the conflict. If it's legitimate to launch attacks on Putin in the Kremlin, it's legitimate to launch an attack on Rishi Sunak in number 10 Downing Street. Don't you see the road that you have gone down and where it leads? Don't you see that it takes two to tango? That if you've declared war on Russia, they're going to declare war on you? Or are you too uncleverly to fully understand that? Now, I don't want to see Rishi Sunak with a a missile, a caliber going down his chimney pot in Downing Street. No, not least because it would harm and kill uh, people I know that work there as police officers and so on. I don't want to see one of these missiles go down the chimney in King Charles Street of the British Foreign Office. Ditto for the same reason. And also, I wouldn't like to see Mr. Cleverly harmed. But if you are openly, publicly exhorting someone to kill the president of another country, for how long do you think that other country will remain sanguine about you in your fastness in Westminster and Whitehall? Are we led by fools or knaves? And which would be worse? I suppose we could be being led by knavish fools and perhaps we are they try to tell you on the bbc that kosovo is a country but it is not a country it has never been a country it isn't even recognized by members of the european union as a country it isn't even recognized by some members of nato as a country countries like spain have got a problem with the idea that a small part of somebody else's country can declare themselves to be a separate country and get the recognition of the big powers in the Western world for obvious reasons. They never answer me when I ask this simple question. If Kosovo can be declared by NATO as a separate country, why can't Crimea? Why can't the Donbass? Why can't Lugansk, Donetsk? Why can't Kherson? Why can't Odessa? Why can't anybody, anywhere, declare themselves to be an independent country and gain the recognition of the big belligerent powers in the Western world? They can't answer that question because it has no answer. But the vast majority of countries in the world do not recognize a country called Kosovo, including the United Nations, doesn't recognize it either and never will recognize it. On what basis then are the NATO forces in what is effectively an illegal occupation of a part of Serbia? Kosovo is in Serbia. That fact will never change. And I know the Serbian people. 
rather well as it happens. I've yet to meet a Serbian who would not give his life's blood to defend the sovereignty of what remains of the once magnificent, multicolored, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multi-religious wonder that was Yugoslavia. Serbia is the last man standing. And if anyone thinks they're going to go quietly into the destruction of the small state of Serbia, they know nothing about Serbians. We'll be talking in the course of the next one hour and 40 minutes to two experts. Professor Glenn Deason is an expert on Yugoslavia, on Serbia, on Kosovo, and as I said, the one and only Scott Ritter, former Marine Intelligence Corps officer, arms inspector, who tried to stop the war on Iraq and who has in vain so far but valiantly trying through no fault of his own to stop a world war erupting over the territory and the bodies of the Ukraine. All that and much, much more coming up on the mother of all talk shows. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, I've been trying to stop wars with Scott Ritter uh, for more than 20 years, getting on for 25 years. Uh, it's not going that well, but not for the one of both of us trying. Scott Ritter, former Marine Intelligence Officer, a man who knows the horrors of war, has just returned from Russia, where he was touring for peace. Let's hear, first of all, how that went. Scott, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. More and more Americans, by the way, are uh, choosing to stay in Russia. I see uh, my good friend Tara Reid, uh, the whistleblower from uh, Joe Biden's private office, uh, has now uh, decided to go and live there. 
Mr. Snowden, of course, the whistleblower of note who had told us so much about how the security state spies on us and sets us up in various ways. Uh, and, and some others uh, that I've seen recently, actors and, uh, and, and the like. Uh, your, re your reception in Russia seemed to be a good one. Did you ever think of staying? Absolutely not. I mean, the, the, the reception, of course, was, uh, was very good. But I'm an American. I'm an American patriot. Um, this is my country. I love my country. Um, and I defend my country. And there's various ways of defending your country. And one of the best ways of defending your country is to, um, is to try and fix it when it's broken. And America's broken right now. But as an American patriot, my, uh, my duty and responsibility is to stay here at home. And, um, and try to fix that which is wrong, to try to cure that which ails us, not to run away. I'm, I'm not denigrating the choices made by others. Uh, free will is a thing. Um, but my, uh, my duty, my responsibility, my loyalties are to the United States of America. That doesn't mean that um, I can't travel to places like Russia, seek to reach out to the Russian people uh, to get a better understanding of the Russian nation, of the Russian soul, uh, to capture that experience and to bring it back to the United States in an effort, an uphill effort, but an effort nonetheless to um, try and change the mindset in this country about Russia so that we don't waste our resources, squander our efforts in, um, in futile and dangerous conflict with Russia where one, none needs exist. Um, you know, we'd be better off uh, turning our efforts inward uh, to to fix the many problems that exist in this country, and to find a way to live in peace and harmony with uh, with the Russian nation, which is a, a great nation populated by a great people. Amen. Uh, where did you go, and what did you do there? Well, the primary mission of the uh, of, of this visit was a book tour. Um, I've I've written a book, uh, Disarming the Time of Perestroika, that not only uh, I think captures a very uh, important time in history. That is the implementation of the first ever nuclear disarmament treaty, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And I remind people that not only did we get rid of nuclear weapons, but it was done in an environment that uh, in some ways parallels um, the tension that exists today, in other ways exceeds it. It was a vein, you know this, George, you know, in the 1980s, how dangerous it was uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And yet, through the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, through arms control, we found a way to come together and, and work cooperatively as friends even to get rid of these weapons. So I, I didn't, I, the book isn't just a piece of history. I call it a template of hope. When people say, how can we get out of this mess that we're currently in? I say, we, we have an example, my book. And the um, book was published in Russian by uh, Komsomolskaya Pravda. And I had the opportunity to go to Russia on a tour, an extensive tour, 12 cities over the course of um, 26 days. And, um, and and bring this book to the Russian people, and in doing so, um, engage in some very meaningful conversations. Uh, you know, it's not an easy topic. Uh, the Russians feel betrayed by the West. There is not the trust that used to exist. Uh, there's a lot of um, of bad feeling between the Russian people and the governments of the West. But uh, there's a, also a lot of um, kindness in their hearts and a, and a willingness to uh, to work with the people of the United States, the people of the West. Uh, so I went to Novosibirsk, uh, third largest city, fastest growing economy in Russia. If anybody thinks sanctions is having an impact on Russia, I'm just here to tell you that it's not. I, I witnessed a vibrant, vigorous, thriving uh, nation uh, 
the the economic engines in full swing. There's construction everywhere, everywhere. Um, it's 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 a nation that's alive, that's thriving. I went to Irkutsk, uh, the history and the beauty of uh, of that part of Siberia, Saint Petersburg. Um, I've never been there before, and every stone in that city is soaked in the blood of um, people who died in the revolution, people who died during the Second World War. It's a city that screams history. You have to see the city to understand Russia. I went to Moscow. I was in Moscow during the Victory Day Parade. It's not a propaganda exercise. It's a genuine expression of the patriotism of the Russian people, and that was made clear to me by what I saw. I traveled to Ekaterinburg, uh, a place where, of course, Tsar Nicholas uh, and his family were killed. Um, it's, you know, one of the largest growing economies in in Russia today. It's home of uh, tremendous industry and history. Um, I got to go back to Vodkinsk, where it all began. Uh, the the city where the, uh, the, the, the the arms control treaty was implemented, where I spent two years of my life uh, going there. Kazan, you want to talk about uh, some interesting, I went to Kazan and Grozny, two Muslim um, nations, um, and the relationship between the Orthodox Russians, deeply religious people, and the Muslims of, um, of Tatarstan and, and Chechnya are amazing. Uh, what, you know, they live side by side uh, with with in, in peace and harmony. It's a lesson to anybody who doesn't think that Christianity and Islam can peacefully coexist. Volgograd, the history of of that battle, formerly Stalingrad, to see the motherland calls statue at uh, Mermayev Kurgan and uh, just feel a shudder down your spine as you understand the scope and scale of the sacrifice that was made by the Soviet people in defending their nation against the scourge of Nazi ideology. Uh, I went to Grozny, as I said. Uh, to meet the Chechen people. I went to Sevastopol um, on Crimea to, to see that. And I finished up in Sochi. Uh, again, uh, Sochi, a uh, city that has been re has been built, redefined uh, through uh, billions of dollars of investment. It's still growing. It's a top-notch city. Um, and all along, I, I met the working class of Russia, the real, the real people of Russia, um, people that make Russia work. And we had frank and honest and open discussions. And uh, it was just a wonderful tour. I I hope that I can do um, the Russian people justice uh, in in the work that I'm going to try and do now that I'm home to try and uh, transfer mm. what I saw, what I learned uh, to the American public, to the Western public at large, in, in an effort to overcome the disease of Russophobia that seems to have gripped our collective societies. Well, you're doing it here very well, Jenny. In the YouTube chat, asks, did Scott get any hassle? on his return at the airport did you yeah of course i did um uh, but i will say this um it was expected um you know you 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 can't be somebody with my profile my background and travel to russia and not be expected to be subjected to um to some severe questioning upon return but i will say this about the customs and border patrol officers that i dealt with they were extremely professional they were courteous they were cordial and um they were professional and there was no um this wasn't um you know something done with bad intent they were doing their jobs they did their jobs very well and we parted on um on very good terms there's no resentment on my part for for, for anything they did i mean it was inconvenient to be held up for several hours but that's life let's turn to the war um the uh the tactics uh, seem to be, I mean, the spring counteroffensive never happened. Maybe it'll be a summer counteroffensive, maybe a winter one, maybe it'll never happen. But the spring one didn't happen. But 
new tactics were deployed. Uh, the Russians called them terrorist uh, tactics, and, and some of them undoubtedly are. They would meet any, uh, any objective criteria for uh, terrorist acts. Uh, and uh, the Russians seem, uh, I know this for a fact, and you probably do too, the Russians feel that the British are egging on uh, the Kiev regime into more and more acts of individual terror, which, of course, is ironic as countries like Britain are never done accusing other people of being terrorists. There's no doubt that the, the British are playing a leading role in um, advising the Ukrainian government and in particular the Ukrainian intelligence services on the, the conduct of this conflict. And uh, the British are specialists in, um, you know, playing the role of the underdog. That is to uh, be the side that has um, less power, but to seek to use unconventional means to maximize uh, potential. They were behind the attack on the uh, Kerch Bridge, um, and they're behind the current onslaught of uh, drones against the uh, against Russian cities, um, you know, but again, they destroyed civilian infrastructure and they killed civilians. There was no military, um, you know, impact of these actions on Russia. Um, what the British, I think, have failed to understand is that they are giving Russia the green light to strike what Russia calls the decision-making centers. I, I just ask people when they keep telling me, Russia invaded, there's a war. Guys, there wasn't a war. There isn't a war. If there was a war, there would be no such thing as a decision-making center still in existence today because they would have been destroyed on day one. Russia has had a soft hand in this. The fact that Russia has had to increase the scope and scale of its activities is because NATO has made the decision to pour tens of billions of dollars of military equipment backed by intelligence, operational training, uh, planning, and British hands-on efforts to inflict harm on the Russian people. So there is an escalation that's taking place. Um, but just imagine if Boris Johnson hadn't flown to uh, Kiev in, um, in March of 2022. Uh, and that the Ukrainians had sat down in Istanbul with the Russians on April 1st, as they were planned to do, to sign a peace treaty that would have brought an end to this war and allowed Ukraine to retain the territorial integrity of at least Zaporizhia and Kherson and Donbass would have been on the table because it wouldn't have been absorbed into Russia. Imagine the hundreds of thousands of, of Ukrainian troops would be alive today, the tens of thousands of Russian troops, the tens of millions of Ukrainian civilians that wouldn't have been displaced the millions of lives of the children. No one talks about the children whose lives have been disrupted. They're not getting the education they need. They're not getting the stability that everybody says is a example of a, a, a mandatory part of child you know, raising. No one talks about this. All of this would have been avoided had the British, the British not intervened. The British government is soaked in the blood of the Ukrainian people. The British government is solely to blame for the suffering that's taking place right now. Um, and I think the, the Russians are getting fed up with it. They're tired of the rhetoric of Ben Wallace. I mean, if you want to talk about a man who is self-indicting himself as one of the most egregious war criminals in modern history, it's Ben Wallace. And, you know, one can only hope that at some point in time in the future that justice will be brought to bear on people like Wallace and others who have been encouraging this conflict.
I had hoped to tell little Ben that at the Oxford Union uh, in a debate where he was slated to face me, but he didn't have the courage to turn up. Uh, but uh, what happens next now in the war? Assuming no offensive breaks in June, uh, do the Russians relentlessly push forward? Do they seek to, as it were, mop up in the Donbass and entirely consolidate their control there? Or do they take the war to Odessa along the coast, liberate and, uh, and fortress uh, Transnistria and so on? How, in other words, how ambitious uh, are Russia likely to be now in this conflict, in your view? The longer this conflict goes on, the more ambitious the Russians will, will get. I mean, one of the things that isn't appreciated is the level of restraint shown by uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. Um, you know, there are many people in Russia who are chomping at the bit, so to speak, to have Russian forces uh, capture Odessa, which they view as a Russian city, to have Russian forces link up with Transisteria, getting rid of that, um, you know, that that geopolitical um, nightmare uh, to to capture Kharkov, Nipopetrovsk, Sumy, these other Russian cities, to bring an end to Ukrainian oppression of Russian culture, language, religion. Um, but the, the the Russian government right now seems to be intent on liberating those territories that it has absorbed into Russia proper and focusing on that effort. Now, this is a very bloody process. I think the battle for Bakhmut proves this. Um, if the uh, statistics put out by um, Evgeny Prigozhin, the, uh, the head of the Wagner group that carried the brunt of the fighting are accurate, and there's no reason to doubt this, 75,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in that battle alone. Um, you know, another 100,000 were wounded. The uh, The amount of equipment destroyed is, uh, is mind-boggling, the damage, the destruction done to the city. Um, and yet that's just one city. There's, uh, there's still 30, 35, percent of the Donetsk uh, Republic, of the Donetsk territory, that is uh, in the control of the Ukrainians. And Russia has said that they are going to take that back. The Chechen forces, uh, the Akhmat forces, are being um, redeployed into this area to carry out offensive operations to continue that. So it seems to me right now that Russia is focused on um, liberating the territories of Russia um, and, and, and limiting their offensive action to that. But they are carrying out strategic air campaigns designed to disrupt any potential Ukrainian counteroffensive. They're killing Ukrainians by the bushels. And I don't say this with glee in my heart. I say it with all the pain that um, that must be mustered when you talk about needless death. But the Russians have said that one of their goals is demilitarization. And they had hoped to get the Ukrainians to do this in as less a violent a way as possible to remove the stain of NATO from Ukraine, but NATO has insisted on painting Ukraine uh, NATO blue and white, and so the de-NATO, you know, the de-NATOizing process is going to be very bloody. It means the physical destruction of the Ukrainian army, and that's happening. There's another aspect of it, which is denazification, and uh, I think this is going to require the collapse of the Ukrainian government. But Putin doesn't seem to have committed to this. That there is still the potential, at least it appears, for a negotiated settlement if Ukraine is willing to accept the reality of uh, what Russia has accomplished. 
My concern is that the West won't allow Ukraine to accept this reality and that this war, which should come to an end in late summer, early August, which is the, the time where I believe the Ukrainian armed forces will have um, exceeded their ability to sustain this conflict. Uh, but if it doesn't and it continues, I think that the next phase will be Vladimir Putin giving the green light for further acquisition of Ukrainian territory. But right now, as things stand, I believe the Russians are willing to accept a peace settlement, a termination of this conflict that limits Russian territorial gains to Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, Lugansk, and Crimea. Well, they're having a peace summit in Paris. The only problem is Russia isn't invited to it. How can you have a peace summit during a war uh, when one of the parties to the war is, uh, is not wanted uh, on voyage? Well, I think what this proves is that there is a split between the Ukrainian government and, um, and its NATO and European supporters. Um, this conflict is unwinnable. NATO now realizes that. They realize that their investment is in vain and that if they continue to go down the path that the trajectory of this conflict is taking, that Russia will succeed in not only destroying the Ukrainian army, but destroying the bulk of NATO's military infrastructure, especially that which has been given to Ukraine. Um, and so in order to avoid this uh, scenario, I think that there's pressure being placed on the Ukrainian government to come up with, um, uh, to accept uh, Russia's terms, to limit the damage that's done not only to Ukraine, but also to uh, to NATO in terms of reputation and in terms of capacity to, uh, to wage war. So I think that's the scope and scale of the peace summit. It's an internal dialogue between Ukraine and the West. Uh, and, you know, Russia will, uh, will be part of this process once Ukraine and the West can agree on, um, you know, what, what peace should look like. It'll be there like Banco's ghost uh, hovering over the table. Scott Ritter, good to have you back uh, on this side of the world, our side of the world, if only we could be more proud of our side of the world. But we're proud of you. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows, as always. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Our next guest is Professor Glenn Deason, who is a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway and the editor at Russia in Global Affairs. Uh, I've spoken to Glenn many times. He's a very learned man and his uh, compass uh, of understanding is second to none in European academia, in my view. And so when the NATO uh, Kosovan Serbian rumpus began this week, I knew that we really had to find Glenn to hear uh, the truth and the background uh, to where we are now. And where, perhaps more importantly, this is all going to go. 
So, Professor Glenn Deeson, thank you for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, let's start with, if we can, uh, how we got here. Uh, many people will be surprised that with NATO's many duties around the world, from the South China Sea uh, to Colombia, uh, that there's uh, hundreds of them in a tiny protectorate, for that's what it is, uh, called Kosovo, which is part of Serbia, and that they are there against the wishes of the Serbian government and people. Explain that conundrum, if you will. Well, it's been a... Uh, well, first of all, let me say, yeah, good to see you again, George, and thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, uh, well, the, this whole story began with the NATO's illegal invasion of Yugoslavia in 1999, um, they, when they invaded uh, without a UN mandate, uh, because they argued that Chinese and Russians were threatening with a veto, which meant that they could override the United Nations. Um, so uh, also it's worth noting that even Henry Kissinger uh, pointed out that uh, uh, NATO was looking for an excuse to bomb by effectively giving, uh, well, sabotaging their own uh, uh, peace accords with the Serbs. Uh, anyways, after the invasion, uh, the, the yeah, NATO set up uh, yeah, Kosovo more or less as a protectorate. Uh, they were able to get some legitimacy, legitimacy for it, though, uh, by getting a, a UN mandate, which was 1244. Uh, and this uh, uh, and this was uh, still what NATO refers to as its uh, legality for being there. However, uh, this mandate recognized the territorial integrity of Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia. So, But what happened over the next year since 1999 was uh, uh, the, the Serbian population in uh, Kosovo was largely ethnically cleansed. They were all pushed out, uh, except for the north. In the north of Kosovo, uh, it's still a Serb majority, and uh, and this uh, and this has been uh, well what NATO sees as a challenge, because uh, NATO then illegally recognized the independence of Kosovo in 2008. They still rely on the mandate 1244, which recognizes the territorial integrity of Serbia, but nonetheless they have violated that mandate themselves. So anyways, uh, over the next few years, uh, the EU attempted to normalize relations between Serbia and Kosovo, which Serbia and the UN doesn't recognize as a state, uh, which was in 2013. And this is uh, part of the format was to have this uh, community of the Serbian uh, municipalities in northern Kosovo. Uh, however, a decade later, uh, the government in Pristina never implemented the agreement and uh, has been trying to cement its control over the north, which, of course, the Serbs would fear. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that brings us to the conflict we're currently at. Exactly. Uh, and uh, you and I both know the Serbian people. Uh, when uh, Djokovic wrote on uh, the front of a television camera, uh, Serbia's, uh, Kosovo is the heart of Serbia, uh, he meant it. And all Serbs mean it they cannot possibly allow further dismemberment of what is now merely a rump of what once was Yugoslavia. No, and that's also been part of the, uh, the strange position of, of NATO because the NATO forcefully uh, took uh, Kosovo from Serbia, which was uh, uh, well, the first time after the Second World War, which changed the European borders by force. Uh, but uh, when we speak of the northern parts of Kosovo, uh, the NATO countries have been quite opposed to 
allowing it to stay in Serbia. So they're suggesting that uh, you know northern Kosovo secession from Kosovo is not permitted, even though technically they wouldn't actually secede because they're really a part of Serbia. So it's um, it's a big game of who's allowed to secede and who's who's not allowed. So it's uh, it's very strange. Um, and uh, yeah, difficult uh, uh, game they're playing. It's effectively yeah. similar as what's happening well, in Bosnia. Strange, uh, strange indeed. Uh, yeah, strange indeed. Though, Glenn, let's uh, let's uh, as it were uh, pan out a bit. Uh, who is allowed to secede and who is not allowed to secede? So Kosovo is allowed to secede, but Catalonia is not, uh, and Crimea is not. How do Western politicians and, and your academic colleagues square that circle? Because it frankly sounds absurd to the ordinary person. Yes, and well, it, it is absurd because what they effectively did was introduce this principle of self-determination, that this should be allowed to override uh, territorial integrity. So now you've introduced two competing concepts. You have territorial integrity or self-determination. And... Uh, well, which principle should work and or, or should it go with? And it turns out that, well, whatever power interests would dictate. So, for example, in Kosovo, we need a, a secession. In Crimea, no, it's territorial integrity. In Taiwan, they're pushing towards secession. So it's all very much, uh, you know, presenting two different competing concepts and then, and then uh, choosing the one that fits uh, their interests. So... Uh, people don't really appreciate how how devastating this uh, invasion was because after the invasion of uh, Yugoslavia in 1999, it was argued that it was uh, it was illegal. It was not legal, but it was legitimate. And this is quite extraordinary because this was the, when we decided to decouple legality from legitimacy. And one has to ask the question: and what makes something legitimate? Well, it turns out liberal democratic values. This is uh, again our vague uh, uh, reference to values and who represents it well it's the it's the nato countries the us and its allies so in other words uh, when making uh, this claim uh, it's the west that gives itself a prerogative to uh, create an exemption for itself in international law so you know we can interfere in the domestic affairs of other countries we can topple governments we can uh, invade we can change borders because now we are acting you know according to uh, liberal democratic values, which allows us to exempt us from the normal international law, which other countries have to follow. So whenever we talk about this rules-based international order, uh, this is what we're talking about, this sovereign inequality between states. And it has its foundation in what was done to, in Kosovo. Yes, which in turn flowed from the pen of uh, Mr. Tony Blair and his Chicago doctrine uh, with his terrible twin Bill Clinton, but here I'm detecting something that uh, I'm going to dive more deeply into on another occasion, but it does seem to me that in the Yugoslav war and the breakup of Yugoslavia, the British were far more uh, aggressive and determined uh, on war than the Americans were, that Blair was more hawkish than Clinton. Uh, ditto in the invasion of Libya, uh, where uh, Cameron and Sarkozy were 
quite a bit more a gung-ho for war than the Obama-Biden administration. And now we're seeing all that repeated again in the Ukraine, where Biden says, don't attack uh, inside Russia. Britain says, do attack inside Russia. It's perfectly legitimate to do so. Uh, in other words, maybe we need to recalibrate uh, our, uh, our, our fire on uh, the US-UK relationship. Maybe the UK is actually perfidious Albion, uh, is more close to the heart of these world problems than we perhaps assumed in the past. Well, uh, you're correct that there was uh, Tony Blair who, who argued that, you know, in this new era of uh, liberal hegemony, he said we've moved be beyond uh, the peace of Westphalia, which was, you know, the recognition of sovereign equality of states. Uh, and his uh, advisor, Cooper, who argued, you know, we need the liberal empire again. Uh, we need to have a garden, uh, protect the garden from the jungle. So again, going very back back to this uh, imperialist uh, rhetoric. Now, uh, but but you're very correct though with this uh, with the British. It's quite for me. It's uh, I'm not quite sure why why the British becomes uh, more hawkish than the United States. But it was also Tony Blair who, uh, after the Serbian t television uh, criticized being bombed in 1999, he argued that this was. Uh, war propaganda, which justified bombing uh, the Serbian media. And, uh, of course, thereafter, the Americans bombed uh, the Chinese embassy when they also complained. But we, we see also the same now uh, in, in in Ukraine, of course. It's very strange that it's always Britain who comes out the hardest. Uh, uh, they called for yeah, attacking inside the Russia. They're the one who's sending depleted uranium ammunition. They're the ones sending the long-range uh, 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 weapon systems. Uh, it's um, yeah, it's quite it's, it's it's quite interesting that this is yeah Britain on the front line. Yes, uh, it may be a sort of me 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 cry uh, now that we've left the European Union and we 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 are desperate uh, for attention. Uh, but on the other hand, it's placing British people in some danger and their interests in very grave uh, danger. Uh, but as I say, I'll, I'll, I'm going to dive more deeply into that on another occasion. Back to, to Serbia for a minute, Professor. Uh, where does this go now? Vukic has stood down as the uh, leader of the ruling party in Serbia. Uh, there are elections. I think he's not going to contest them. Uh, there are big social movements uh, on all kinds of things, family values, uh, and uh, and the issue of mass shootings and so on. There are a lot of currents at play inside Serbia. No Serbian leadership can afford to sell out Kosovo, can they? Any more than they can afford to, for example, sanction Russia. Uh, no government could survive in Serbia that did either of these two things, let alone both of these two things. No, I agree. And this is kind of the problem for Serbia. On one hand, um, yeah, no Serbian leader can, uh, well, uh, surrender Kosovo. Uh, on the other hand, they don't want a war with uh, NATO either. But uh, in my opinion, if, if, if they're forced and pushed to a corner, I think that they would deploy a military force if required to protect the Serbs in uh, northern Kosovo. Uh, so it's um, my, my expectation. Or how how I see this is that uh, the Serbs will try uh, 
well they have an in, strong incentive to walk this uh, well to to well soothe their relation the, the tensions if it's possible and i think that the benefit now is uh, that it appears that nato might uh, well that they also want to reduce tensions now uh, don't get me wrong i think that over the past month the uh, nato countries have been quite responsible for provoking this because uh, for months now they've been putting immense pressure on serbia to make concession on the kosovo issue and also to force uh, serbia by the way to put sanctions on russia now this is what the serbian president has complained about for months uh, as well that they never experienced this amount of pressure before and even the u.s ambassador to serbia confirmed in march that the u.s was making serbia uh, quote, pay a high price for its reluctance to impose sanctions on Russia. So the U.S. committed itself to keeping up the pressure on Serbia. And there's been also many publications in the West that this is an opportunity uh, now with the war in Ukraine that they can put, put a split between the Serbs and the Russians uh, as a condition for NATO to establish uh, an exclusive sphere of influence in the Western Balkans. So the reason why this has contributed to this escalation is, you know, how does the Kosovo Albanians re re react to this? Well, they saw that NATO has, uh, well, effectively given them uh, unconditional support since 1999. And so now the authorities in Kosovo saw this as an opportunity to escalate, to cement their control over northern Kosovo. Uh, however, the Serbs in northern Kosovo pushed back and Serbia put its military on high alert on the other side of the border. So... What we're actually seeing now for the first time is NATO countries, then especially the United States and France, uh, criticizing the government in Kosovo for having incited this conflict and also now pressuring and punishing them in order to de-escalate. So again, this is something entirely new. So I, I, I don't see NATO wanting or can afford to uh, make this escalate into a war. Um, but again, they wanted to bring pain to the Serbs with max pressure. But uh, now that NATO seemingly wants to de-escalate, uh, it might be an opportunity uh, if they're able to control uh, Kosovo, that is, because uh, the government there, you know, they've had, uh, for the past, uh, since 99, they had uh, effectively the assumption that NATO would uh, defend them or, or support them no matter what. So they haven't really had, ex they've expected that they can get anything they want. So... Uh, this is also a new situation for them, and it remains to be seen if they are willing to yeah, de-escalate. Professor Glenn Deason, thank you as always for joining us with your wisdom and your eloquence uh, on this subject. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Fra is in Belfast. On Kosovo. Go ahead, Fra. Hey, George. I'm going to talk about Kosovo, if you don't mind, via Beirut. Uh, I'm just back from a conference there. It was a global gathering in support of the Axis of Resistance. Uh, and it was held for four days in Beirut. Uh, as you know, a very beautiful city by the sea. The uh, people mm -hmm. at the conference, you know, represented, uh, there were various groups, including the uh, popular mobilization units in Iraq. There were people from Iran, people from Lebanon, uh, people from Syria representing some of the government and foreign uh, departments. And among the people that were attendees was a lady from Serbia. So I got the chance to uh, chat to her, uh, Dragana was her name, and she was telling me part of the history 
uh, obviously of the breakup of Yugoslavia and the attack on Serbia and what's happening in Kosovo today. Like, she has absolutely no time for the present administration in Serbia. And some of the things she told me along the lines of, you know, that the Kosovo Liberation Army had originally been designated as a terrorist organization by the USA and was then de-designated as uh, and, such. And by Britain. And by Britain. Robin yeah. Cook designated the Kosovo Liberation Army as a terrorist organization before turning our air force over to them. And very much like what's happening in Ukraine, they then used the Kosovo Liberation Army in a proxy war against Serbia. And she was telling me that it was really when the Serbian military security apparatus, uh, including the Serbians in Kosovo, and were on the point of crushing the Kosovo Liberation Army that NATO then stepped in. Its proxy was being defeated and NATO then stepped into the breach in order to save them and then went on to bomb Belgrade. But she told me an interesting thing, George, uh, and I have no reason to doubt it. very intelligent and very, very well-placed person politically. Uh, she, she said that Kosovo only has like 5,000 combat troops and it was something to do with, I don't know, if it was a peace deal with NATO or what came out of it, but they are limited in the amount of soldiers that they can have uh, at arms. And she also said that the Serbian government was sending uh, munitions to Ukraine and it also supplied Saudi Arabia for ISIS in Syria. So while I like a lot of politicians say things in public, in the background, there's all these Machiavellian machinations uh, and how they, how they appear in secret to be carrying out what she considered to be American policy in the region. So just wonder what you thought of that. I, I, I don't believe that. Uh, I don't believe that that's true of the Serbian government, though, of course, I'm familiar with the accusation. Uh, if Send us her, her details. Dragana, if she's a good speaker in English, and we'll, we'll get her on the show, Fra. Thanks uh, very much for that report, uh, drawing the absolute parallels that exist between uh, the Kosovan question and the Ukrainian question. Michael is in Washington on the issue of world leaders. Let's hear what Michael thinks of them. Go ahead, Mike. Thank you, George. Uh, uh, firstly, uh, the uh, Brits being more hawkish, that's a uh, Terry Thomas protocol, isn't it? One-upmanship, I think. Yeah, uh, one-upmanship uh, in a very deadly way, uh, making yeah. our people uh, the number one villain in the world. That was your job, Michael, uh, in the United States. But at least you're protected by the Atlantic Ocean up to a point, uh, hitherto. Uh, but we're not protected at all. Uh, we're a sitting duck, a sitting target, uh, with no means uh, to defend ourselves beyond, if America allowed us, unleashing uh, nuclear weapons, bringing about the complete end of our country. Some defense, that is. Uh, go on, Mike. Well, these so-called leaders, uh, I have two brief questions. One is, uh, is it possible, and you've known a lot of these guys, is it possible that in their elderly, elderly age and in their positions of power that they have it as a fantasy in their mind playing out that if they eliminate young men, they're going to gain the, uh, 
you know, limited competition and gain the admiration of young women? Is that a possibility? Well, uh, Joe Biden uh, likes them young, uh, preferably children. Uh, so who knows what goes on in the minds of these people? Uh, I, I think in the case of the British, uh, it is a bit of me, me, me. Uh, look at me. Uh, these European Union backsliders are all umming and eyeing and on the one hand, but on the other, maybe we better be careful and so on. Uh, so the British run out in front of the Americans and say, look at me, uh, I'm ready to go even farther than you. Uh, and it may be as pathetic as that. It really may be. It certainly can't come from any calibration of Britain's national interest. That is uh, the complete opposite of Britain's national interest. Uh, it cannot be because we think we could fight and win against Russia, against China, against both of them together. Uh, it cannot possibly be that unless they've forgotten about these long ago events in Afghanistan uh, just a year or so ago uh, when the Americans slunk out like a thief in the night from Afghanistan, the British having already slunk. Uh, we couldn't beat guys in sandals on bicycles with Kalashnikovs, but we can beat hypersonically nuclear-armed superpowers. I write, as we say in Scotland. Michael, thanks for the uh, call. Uh, a legend is on the line. Clear the lines. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um I didn't really mean to phone again, you know, so quickly, but I'm a bit worried. You're always um, welcome. Always welcome. On, <laughs> on the news today, um, they were talking about these Ukrainian children, many of them, that um, have been evacuated to Russia to supposedly summer camps, mm -hmm. and then later their families had to travel miles and miles to get them back, and they didn't all come back. And I want to know what this is all about, because basically it's, I wouldn't have thought it was altruistic to do that. And, you know, it's been a bit concerning, really. Um, have you heard well, about I, it? I'm not sure. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know the story. I mean, maybe they're training the children to be handle, handle uh, Baluja will former spy wills. Uh, I mean... We really are getting into the realms of the ridiculous now, Norma. Why would Russia want to kidnap Ukrainian children? Why? For what purpose? Children yeah. are not going to be able to fight in the war or work in the factories or... I mean, what would be the point of it? It is such base, vulgar childish propaganda that it's amazing yep. that anyone believes it but Norma yep. they do they do believe it George hello okay yeah you. sorry no, I'm um, saying they do believe it yeah but you see the thing is they showed these parents and people traveling miles and miles and they got their children back and they were very concerned about them being taken in the beginning. 
And it was all pictured on the news, so it's bound to be true, isn't it? No, it's not bound to be true. How can you say that after listening to me all these years, Norma? Of course it's not bound to be true. This is a propaganda psychological war that we're in. These stories are psyops. And if even a wise and dedicated woman like you says it's bound to be true, that proves that it's working, Norma. Think. Yeah, but we'll talk later. I've got to make uh, I've got to make way for another legend. You know, you're not the only legend, you know. But uh, Tommy in Glasgow, from our diplomatic wing, wanted to have the last word, but we haven't been able to get him. Tommy, call back. Uh, Bigfoot on YouTube says, first we had Chinese spy balloons. Now we have a former Beluga Russia spy will. That former that gets me. Next we'll get Chinese spy Big Macs. Well, this Russian fertilizer is, of course, fertilizing everything. How do we know? that that fertilizer doesn't place surveillance equipment in the Brussels sprouts that will be on our dinner tables come Christmas time. How do we know that? Russian fertilizer, up to no good. Now the uh, poll results uh, are overwhelming. Is Roger Waters being smeared? 88%, 95%, 97%, 98%. Percent, 12,302 people voted across all platforms. Roger, you are vindicated as if you needed it. You're a great man. You deserve uh, all the love that is coming your way from good people uh, all over the world. Now, I was expecting Tommy on the line or I wouldn't have had to cut Norma short. Norma, please forgive me. It was a clash of two legends. But uh, Tommy has disappeared. I'm very sorry about that. I feel very strongly about the media, as you know. But I feel strongly that we're really on to something. I gave you the viewing figures for the last seven days. This is on a budget so small that you would laugh if I told you what it was. You would laugh that this show with that audience could be built by that amount of money. And so when I saw somebody called George Galloway had won 300,000 pounds on a scratch card and started to get newspaper calls to ask if it was me, I thought to myself, well, good luck to the George Galloway in Glasgow that won £300,000 on a scratch card, which I had described at the time. They were launched as the crack cocaine of the gambling business, a view to which I hold. But it was quite funny that everybody thought that it was me that had won it. That man in Glasgow called George Galloway has probably had problems over his life having that name and uh, I'm sorry if that is true, but my point is, somebody would back me. What could we build this into? What could we build this mother of all talk shows format, brand, into? 
when we've got more than two and a quarter million people watching the show over seven days on virtually nothing, with no investment, with virtually no income. Just think what we could do if we had an anti-war chest. If you're out there and you've won a scratch card fortune, or if you're out there and you have a business that you'd quite like to be showcasing to such a large audience, please write to me at onair at moats.tv. There he is, Glasgow couple. Say their £300,000 win has left them in complete shock. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Galloway. Uh, it couldn't have been us because we don't do it. So I'm glad that it was you. If you are out there and you can help build this Moats brand, just think what we could achieve. Because I'm not satisfied with two and a quarter million. I won't be satisfied until all over the world people are making a regular date to sit down live and watch the mother of all talk shows on Wednesdays and on Sundays. I'll be back, God willing, on Sunday at the earlier time, please note, of 7pm UK time, where we'll be across all these burning issues and bringing you the best guests and guests that you'll never find on the BBC, even sitting on the back of a Baluja whale. Good night.